talking about viruses to talking about some good old-fashioned pus now with MRSA. So uh, here, I guess I can just go down here. We'll just we'll dive right into the pus here. So how many of you see these occasionally in your emergency department or something like it, right? So uh, you know, patients come in with these a lot. They've got an abscess. There may be some surrounding cellulitis around it or something, but. They never come into the emergency department and say, oh, yeah, I have an abscess and it's MRSA. What do they almost always come in saying that they complain of? Spider bite, exactly. So I remember when we started seeing these, we were always doing a lot of studies on antibiotics for various types of skin soft tissue infections. So, you know, we'd kind of culture a lot of these and uh, we were interested in it. So I'd see a lot of them. And I remember back kind of in the early 2000s when it really seemed like all of a sudden we're seeing more and more and more of these things. And everybody, of course, would come in saying they had a spider bite. And we were wondering, you know, is there some new mutant breed of spider that's, you know, going to take over the world or something? And we would culture these things because we often we were doing them as part of studies and we were starting to find MRSA on all these people and uh, who didn't have any of the traditional MRSA risk factors. And we see a lot of this in the emergency department. I think we were on kind of the front lines when people get a big abscess and it swells up and it hurts. They tend to come into the emergency department. And even if they go into their primary care doc, into their internist office or their FP or whatever, a lot of times they, they're not really set up. They don't want to be like slicing and dicing and doing incision and drainage when they got a patient scheduled every 12 minutes or something. So they often wind up sending them to the emergency department anyway. So we deal with a lot of these in the ER. Oh, and by the way, we don't even have these spiders here in Southern California. So the ones that, that are convinced, even in the Midwest, I actually grew up in the Midwest. I'm from Kansas City. And uh, even there, even in the areas where Loxosceles reclusa actually exists, they see probably 20 MRSA skin abscesses for every brown recluse bite that they see. So, But you can reassure your patients, we don't even have the brown recluse biters around here, even though... So many of the patients, they swear they saw the spider bite them, and they know that it was a spider. Now, why you would sit there and watch a spider bite you and wait, I don't know. But <laughs> nonetheless, some of them can't be convinced. But, uh, and I think, I, I think the reason that they think that is because so often these just start as a spontaneous folliculitis. just comes up out of the blue, and often they can blow up fairly quickly, you know, but by the time they notice it to when they see it, you know, within a day they've got this big red swollen lump there, and there's often kind of some necrotic stuff in the middle of it. So I can imagine it could look like a spider bite where they've got sort of those uh, uh, necrosis-inducing toxins, and it, they can appear similar to some of the pictures that you'll look at of brown recluse bites. But it is a, a different thing, and I think just because they come up spontaneously with folliculitis, it's not usually wound infections or other things. I think that's probably what promotes people thinking that it's due to a spider bite or something like that. Some of them get pretty big and nasty and can sort of track uh, through other pores and get a little bit bigger. Um, this one, now, of course, every time you see an abscess in the antecubital fossa like that, what's going to be your first assumption? Right? Yeah, this guy, I remember seeing this guy, and he swore up and down that he wasn't injecting drugs, and I still didn't believe him. Um, but if you look at this, so he's got this abscess here in his antecubital fossa, and you can see he's got lymphangitis. You can see the red streaks giving a nice little color to his devil head tattoo there. And even though when you read the textbooks, classically lymphangitis like that is a sign of strep, and Probably it is relatively more common with strep. You can see it with staph also. And most of the time when you're talking about abscesses, if you're seeing an abscess, it's going to be staph aureus, whether it's MRSA or MSSA. You can have mixed ones. Strep, yes, can sometimes cause abscesses. But when you see an abscess, far more likely it's going to be staph compared to strep. So uh, here's a reject from the Calvin Klein ad campaign. <laughs> now, the, uh, the uh, Abercrombie and Fitch people don't want fat, ugly people wearing their clothing, but apparently Calvin Klein is trying to go for the, you know, festering boil demographic, I guess, so they get it out there. But, you know, you can see these in a lot of different places. You can see them all over the body. Very often we do see them around the perineum. You see them, like, you know, in the underwear area, on the buttocks around there, because that's where it often tends to be carried. Staph aureus. Traditionally, uh, you know, sort of the textbook place that people would carry Staph aureus is in the nose. And so when we screen people for Staph aureus carriage, that's always where traditionally we would do it. But there is some evidence that these community MRSA strains are actually selected to be carried relatively more often in other places on the body. A lot of people carry them in the axilla. A lot of people carry them around the perineum and around there. And often you'll see the abscesses coming up in those types of areas. Some of these can be pretty nasty. There are descriptions of kind of necrotizing fasciitis 
type of syndromes related to MRSA. In fact, that was from some people uh, just up the way a little bit here at Harbor where they described these things. And you can definitely see necrosis. We know, and we'll talk about some of the toxins, MRSA, these community strains do code for a lot of toxins that will produce necrosis. They do team, seem to behave a little differently than the classic necrotizing fasciitis. They don't tend to cause these rapidly spreading fasciitis where they're actually spreading along tissue planes. It's common that you'll get a lot of localized necrosis and very often you'll see necrosis, especially over the top of the abscesses like this. Um, you know, whether it's happening on the hand in a high-risk area like that. Um, here's a guy who's got a big giant one on his back. And uh, this guy was diabetic and, and he had a number of issues. But I guess he finally decided when he couldn't cover it with a Band-Aid anymore, it was <laughs> finally, time to, finally time to come in. And you can see a lot of necrosis with these. And obviously something big like this, you're going to have to do a pretty extensive debridement. You know, may need to get your suction out and, and really do this. Um, to clean this stuff out. And you can see a lot of necrotic stuff along the edges of these that you really need to debride, but they don't really tend to behave like a, a classic necrotizing fasciitis where they'll be uh, sort of spreading quickly like this. Now, in the whole, we, we were pretty uh, in tune to the whole MRSA emergence phenomenon in the emergency department back in the early 2000s. We were seeing a lot of these things, and it made it into the, the lay press as well when these things started to emerge. And a number of them were these sort of... Uh, dramatic cases where young healthy people would get a skin infection, get an MRSA infection. And here's a story, this is from Men's Health. And of course, you know, they can't call it, oh, it's the bacteria that gives you a little abscess and you drain in the emergency department and 99% of them do just fine. Of course, that wouldn't sell a lot of magazines. So no, it's the killer in the locker room, right? So this was a case of a young guy, young football player, young, totally healthy guy, got a little pimple on his butt and got treated with Keflex by, uh, by a PMD somewhere, got worse, didn't get better, and he wound up progressing to sepsis and he ultimately died. And there have been some of these cases. I mean, these can be pretty aggressive uh, behaving infections, can sometimes kill young healthy people. Fortunately, that's a very, very small fraction compared to the huge numbers of people that we see who have uncomplicated skin abscesses, you drain them and they go home. But do be aware that, that there is that risk of them happening. And of course, it's made it into popular culture, even in Rex Morgan, MD, had a story about MRSA-related deaths. He seems to get pretty excited about everything and all those excitement lines going off of him in the cartoon. But, um, but the way we know this disease has really made it is now it has its very own colored wristband. So yes, there's a colored wristband for MRSA awareness. Um, you can get it. This was actually a foundation started by the family of somebody who actually died, a, a young person who actually died from an MRSA infection. So let's talk a little bit about community MRSA and the differences of that and hospital-acquired MRSA. Uh, we older folks remember back in the old days when you didn't even think about MRSA in somebody who came in out of the community. It was really something you would only see in people who were in the hospital, nursing homes, something like that. Um, we know that these are genetically distinct strains. So we know it was not a situation where the MRSA that was going around in hospitals for years and years moved out into the community and was now spreading there. They're completely different strains. You can map them genetically. So what happened is the strain of MSSA, the methicillin susceptible staph that was out circulating out in the population, acquired these resistance genes. And there was something about these strains that made them very selected to succeed and to spread and to cause disease within the human population. In a very short period of time, these became the predominant strains. The good news of these strains compared to hospital MRSA is that they're more susceptible to antibiotics compared to the hospital strains. Most of them are susceptible to things like trimethoprim sulfa or Bactrim, Clinda, Doxy, Rifampin, um, more likely than the hospital strains. The bad news is that they behave more aggressively. They are more likely to code for various toxins. Uh, there's a few that people talk about. The, the PVL or Pantin-Valentine-Leukocidin is a toxin that actually uh, recruits and destroys white blood cells. Um, people debate as to whether that's really the, uh, uh, the toxin that makes the bacteria more aggressive and more likely to cause infections. Uh, but there are a number of other ones, a long list of toxins now that have been described, various peptides and various other things that are known to be produced more uh, commonly by these strains. And so it makes them very likely to cause an infection when people get them. So very few people carry these strains around asymptomatically, whereas a lot of people carry Staph aureus. About a third of us 
carry Staph aureus at any given time in our noses. And in fact, almost all of us carry Staph aureus transiently at least some portion in our, of our lives. Those of us who work in healthcare probably carry hospital MRSA a good portion of that time. But probably less of us are carrying these community strains of MRSA. I mean, they've done some studies looking at carriage rates, and we'll talk about that a little bit. So there's not a whole lot of asymptomatic carriage of these. It seems that it's more driven by people actually getting infections, and then you know they're spreading to other people, either in their family or other close contacts. So we noticed this uh, long ago. As I mentioned, we were doing clinical trials of various antibiotics for skin infections. And historically, in the ER, we would almost never culture these things. Somebody would come in with an abscess, we'd drain it, we'd send them home. And if we were going to give them antibiotics at all, we'd just give them some Keflex and not even think about it. Um, but we were culturing them because we were sometimes doing clinical trials. So we were culturing these kind of spider bite abscesses. And we noticed back in the early 2000s that we were seeing MRSA come up. So we just kind of wrote up a descriptive study saying, hey, look, look at what we saw. We saw a bunch of people in our ER had these skin infections. We cultured them. And MRSA just really shot up over just a couple of year period. It became the single most common bacteria that we found in our emergency department. Um, and we looked at the antibiotic susceptibilities. It was pretty similar to what we now see uh, in, the, in these uh, community strains of MRSA. So we've, if you look at this at our hospital, this is just what's cultured. So these are just the number of cultures. This isn't part of a study, so it's not a population-based thing. But these are just the number of MRSA-positive cultures that we found in our lab. You'll see it took a huge jump up in the early to mid-2000s. And it seems to have kind of plateaued since then. I think a lot of this is just driven by the ones that are cultured. I mean, when somebody comes into our ER now and they've got an abscess and we drain it, we send them home, we don't even culture it. So we know this is just tip of the iceberg. We see way more MRSA than this. Uh, but it does appear at least, my, my sort of uh, anecdotal impression is that we're not seeing the big increase that we saw back about 10 years ago, that it seems to have kind of plateaued off somewhat. We. Uh, have this network of emergency departments that uh, Dave Talon and I put together many years ago. So this is a group of emergency departments all across the U.S. were funded by CDC to study emerging infectious diseases. And so when we started noticing this in our emergency department, we talked to our other investigators, other places, said, yeah, we're seeing a lot of this stuff now. So we thought, well, this is the perfect thing for us to study. We see them a lot in the emergency department. And so we did a very simple study. Basically, all we did was we said, all right, everybody in all these emergency departments during the month of August in 2004, every single patient that you see with a skin infection in your emergency department, get a culture. If there's pus there, if it's an abscess, if it's an infected wound with pus, even if it's a cellulitis that's weeping something that you can culture, send a culture and we'll just get a snapshot and we'll see how much of this is caused by MRSA. And lo and behold, we found that the majority, 59%, now this was something that just even five years before this, we would virtually never see and had now become the single most common cause of skin infections in all these places all across the US. Um, you'll see there was a fair amount of regional variability. Um, in LA, you see we were just a little over half Champion was here at Truman Medical Center in Kansas City, my hometown, Kansas City. So they had the highest rate, 74%. Seemed to be relatively a little less in the Northeast, but you see there's kind of wide variability between places there. Um, and so uh, we, we uh, noted that, and uh, it was fairly remarkable at what a short period of time this had really taken off as the most common cause. We did find that there was remarkable uniformity all across the US in the different strains. Almost all were this USA 300 strain, and that's the predominant cause that we see causing these skin infections. That's the one that has the PVL toxin and a number of these other toxins. And in fact, most of these were even a single clone, this 300.0114. There's something about this strain that has made it very well adapted to spread in the human population and has just taken off and taken over as the predominant strain of staph causing infections all over. Most of them did have this PVL gene. There's also a characteristic resistance gene. There's, there's uh, five different types of these staphylococcal cassette chromosome uh, MEC genes. They tend to cluster together. They're, they can be passed around in, in packets, these resistance genes. And that's why there tends to be a fairly characteristic pattern of resistance, because uh, those resistance genes will, will often be sort of passed around in the same packet of DNA between bacteria. When we did that study, we looked at factors. We just looked epidemiologically to see, are there certain clinical features, epidemiology, things that could 
be associated with isolating MRSA as a cause of infection. In other words, looking, can we predict, can we f look at some pattern to say, I need to treat this person for MRSA, or this person I could maybe just give them Keflex if they need antibiotics and not cover MRSA. We did find that there were certain things that were statistically associated with isolating MRSA, um, having prior antibiotics, abscess, if the patient reported a spider bite, then, then that made it very likely it was going to be MRSA. Actually, interestingly, having underlying illness made it less likely that it was going to be MRSA. And I don't think that's because having diabetes and cancer and all those things makes you somehow impervious to MRSA. I think it just makes them relevant.